This is the Talk Editions Podcast. You don't really have much control over how you move at that point because you're circling the planet. I'm Marina Kifferstein, violinist of Talk Ensemble, and I'm thrilled to introduce this week's episode. Today we'll hear from Brad Garten, Taylor Brooke, and Laura Lewison. They'll talk about Star Maker Fragments, the absolutely stunning new album-length work that Taylor wrote for Talk. The album release is accompanied by Lara's gorgeous and evocative multimedia artwork, which is featured both in the album and poster design, and as a virtual online installation piece. The album comes out tomorrow, March 3rd, and is available to stream and purchase on Bandcamp and other platforms. Taylor Brooke is the technical director of Talk Ensemble and has been one of our closest artistic collaborators since the ensemble's inception in 2013. His accomplishments are almost too many to mention, but they include numerous SoCan Young Composers Awards, degrees from McGill and Columbia University, and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellowship. He is currently a core lecturer at Columbia University, and we keep him pretty busy as technical director of talk. Laura Lewison currently lives in New York City and is from Lukaltia, Washington. She paints, plays violin, makes 2D and 3D digital art, and codes to combine them all. Lara creates audiovisual art for the web and for live performance, with a focus in networking, language, and creating live works that are dependent on exchanges between performer and audience. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Music from Columbia University and was the 2020 recipient of the Lewis Sudler Prize in the Arts. They'll be interviewed today by Brad Garten, who serves as director of the Computer Music Center at Columbia University and has worked closely with both Taylor and Lara in that capacity. He has assisted in the establishment and development of a number of computer music studios throughout the world and is an active contributor to the greater community of computer musicians and researchers. I'll let them take it away from here. Hi there. Uh, my name is Brad Garten, and I'm here kind of hosting a podcast with uh, two exceptionally talented people, Taylor Brooke and Lara Lewinson. Lewison, sorry, Lara. And we're going to be talking about a project that they're both releasing on March the 3rd. Uh, it's, a, it's a big piece that Taylor did. Um, it's called The Star Maker. And you can read about it at the Talk Ensemble website slash Star Maker. Um, and uh, Taylor has done the music and Laura did a bunch of really interesting kind of 3D graphics to go with it. So it's kind of like one coherent piece. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, what that piece is. Um, just kind of step back a minute. I think Taylor asked me to, to kind of do these questions and answers because I've involved myself in some similar projects. Um, I've written a series of, uh, for want of a better word, I'll call them book apps, where the text and the audio is all integrated with graphics and you can read them on a computer screen or uh, a tablet screen or something like that. And they're designed to be very interactive. Um, and th this project has that character too. Um, I've also been involved in a lot of VR projects lately, um, in particular one where I'm kind of recreating scenes from my past. And uh, that kind of has the flavor of this book too. Um, and in fact, let's, let's just talk a little bit about this book and then I'll get into, you know, asking some questions of our, of our guests here. Um, I'll just read this. Taylor Brooks' Star Maker Fragments sets excerpts of Olaf Stapledon's groundbreaking 1937 novel, Star Maker. Um, as I read the book, that just blew me away because it sounded like something that was written yesterday, you know. Um, most notable is the invention of the many worlds model of the universe, you know, and talks about the human narrator and how they can kind of travel through space and time and, and discover all these various different um, sort of 
civilizations, different ways of being, and brings up, you know, concerns about utopia versus madness, the nature of God, and just huge, huge imaginative description. And um, I'm going to read you something from the preface, which may be part of why this was a particularly attractive project, given our current state of the world. The preface, it says, this is from Stapledon in 1937. At a moment when Europe is in danger of a catastrophe worse than that of 1914, a book like this may be condemned as a distraction from the desperately urgent defense of civilization against modern barbarism. Yeah, I think that kind of works today, too. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, I want to I start getting into it because uh, I'd like to hear what uh, Lara and, and Taylor have to say. Uh, Taylor, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you're kind of the main sort of force behind this, I think. And um, first of all, I just, I just want to say I really, you, you probably know this, but I'm a big fan of your work, you know. I mean, ever since you first came to Columbia, I, I teach at Columbia, and, and Taylor and Lara were both students there um, back in the olden days. Um, I remember, I think it was one of our first sort of composition seminars where we had our incoming students play their pieces. Um, I believe it was this one. And you played a percussion piece that just blew me away. I mean, it had a rhythmic vibrancy along with the timbral sensitivity that was just, just really gorgeous. And I listened to it and, you know, I'd, I'd seen your application and that piece wasn't in it. Maybe it's a later piece even. Um, I wonder if it was the violin concerto for percussion quartet and violin it might have been it might have been yeah it was really it was really just you know it was it was sort of like steve reich but the way i wished that it would go <laughs> you know sorry uh, maybe you well that actually i like i like that description because sometimes that's how i think of my own pieces or many of them it's like um sort of uh, what i sort of like an alternate reality version of a composer that i like <laughs> so that that works for me yeah 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 uh, you know i'm i think i'm still like a, a rock star you know i'm still rick wakeman deep inside no i'm kidding <laughs> no but i i know that feeling um and another piece you did that was just incredible we always used to use it in our demos at the computer music center was the electromechanical guitar you made where you oh, had a yeah. guitar with these spinning things like a hurdy-gurdy type thing it was a great object and it just produced wonderful music too so you know that doesn't well, in a certain sense, that kind of plays into what you did with Star Maker. Um, but yes, and, and in fact, uh, sorry, sorry to cut yeah, you off ahead, there, but uh, and in fact, that that piece. So th this was for two guitars that were played by sort of Arduino Arduino controlled DC motors. Um, that was also for Talk Ensemble, which this piece was for. So, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow, I thought it was a standalone thing. Um, Silly me. Uh, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about the talk ensemble in a little bit too, because uh, you've got a really deep relationship with them. I mean, obviously. And I've got some questions about your working methodology. But even prior to that, um, I want to ask you how you kind of got into composing in the first place. You know, how do you work? And then maybe follow that up with the what was the genesis of Star Maker in that context? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, how I got into composing goes way back at this point. I mean, I'm, I feel, I feel like it's uh, several lifetimes ago at this point. But I mean, it. Uh, I got serious about composing basically uh, late in high school. I was something of a late bloomer when it comes to music. I didn't really take music lessons until I was uh, in my early teens. Um, and uh, but at one point, a string quartet came and played Bartok's Fourth the first movement 
in my high school library. Uh, and up to that point, I liked music and I played music and, you know, I was involved with it, but that, um, sort of blew my mind. It, 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 it opened up concepts of what music could be in ways that I, up to that point, couldn't have imagined. And so from there, I got interested in all sorts of stuff. I was also very fortunate that, um, uh, I was very good friends with James Tenney's daughter, at that point and so that also presented a little bit of an in into the sort of more experimental or, or or the concepts around music that are not sort of just present in everyday life so that's i mean that's sort of how it began and then i mean star and then star maker comes years and years later when i i um i mean like many people uh i imagine i had something of a crisis um uh, around the um around uh the presidency of donald trump and uh, and i had to reconsider what i was doing uh with my life um uh, t so that and and sort of think about um politics more actively than i had before and not just sort of like being vaguely progressive uh and and sort of quarantining my art away from i should, should avoid that word at this point <laughs> during the pandemic but uh sort of hermetically sealing how about uh what i'm doing with music away from politics thinking that it's sort of enough that making non-commercial art is in and of itself a political statement which i think there's i think there's some argument to be made there but i felt like it wasn't sufficient anymore for me um and so with with star maker this was after a consideration of well how can i um, how can I put um, politics more directly into a musical work in a way that I find satisfying from a lot of different angles? And this text um, by Olaf Stapleton, the star maker, um, just captured, ex I mean, it, it just sort of immediately spoke to me in, on, on many levels. Because one, it's, it is a politically motivated text I and mean, it was written in 1937 you read the excerpt from the introduction there it's it is a reaction to the rise of fascism stapleton was a pacifist so he actually spoke out against um the involvement in world war one he was living in england uh but world war two um he actually um um thought that opposing uh, opposing fascism in 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 a real way was was important he actually stepped back from his pacifism and the book re it, it reflects in a way that is at sometimes incredibly obvious and sometimes uh much less obvious um but putting together putting a sort of like a collectivist pacifist very positive view of human nature it just it just spoke to me and i thought that there were a lot of connections with what he was writing then with what is happening now yeah and so like there there's a whole section which is i mean it's, it's somewhat mired in the language of the 1930s where he's talking about um you know means of production and workers and capitalists and these things um but th this language is is reappearing today for good reason and i think uh in in a even more subtle way today and it was interesting for me and very challenging for me to have this kind of story actually in a piece of music <laughs> so hopefully i did a good job in, oh, yeah. in actually including it 
in that way. Yeah, totally. In fact, I was hoping you'd say something like that because, uh, you know, that, that was my sense, you know, especially what you're talking about, you know, like I said, when I read the book, it's like, it could have been written just a few years ago, you know, even despite the, the, the neo-Marxist language or whatever, you know, but, uh, yeah. And the, the speculative genre of science fiction gives him an opportunity to create and describe different societies that have different features, different civilizations, different ways of being. And he does push his political agenda that way, you know, in like, you know, describing what he called the mad worlds that were, you know, just out to take over everything. And, you know, and then also the whole nature of God stuff. We'll get to that later, I think. But uh, um, I want to bring up something else, though, that I think is intriguing about not just this project, but the way that I've observed that you and, you know, people in your cohort work. Um, and this has to do with your relationship with the Talk Ensemble, which is, if people don't know, they're just a stellar new music group in New York City, um, doing fabulous work, you know, renowned throughout the world now. And Taylor was involved in the uh, the inception of the thing. Um, but uh, I have to describe to you a, a bad thing. When I was in graduate school, you know, many years ago, uh, Part of the reason I do computer music exclusively now is because the concert scene was just so terrible. You know, it was that old model where you as a composer wrote your your on-high utterances that you would then give to the ensemble who would then kind of, you know, just trash it and say, oh, this is just terrible, you know. Then the concert would finally arise and, you know, it was basically an occasion for the audience to kind of snicker and talk about how terrible this piece was or how hackneyed that piece was. Um, and I contrasted that with when I came back into graduate school. Prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of work with, um, you know, rock bands and, and in recording studios, which was a very communal kind of situation. And I see that happening now. You know, when I see the way you work with the talk ensemble, it's almost like you've got a band. Um, am I way off base with that? Uh, maybe you could tell a little bit about how you work with them to create this piece. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I mean, the what you're describing about your experience in, in graduate school, uh, it, it's something I experienced a little bit, I'd say, um, during my undergrad and my master's. Um, where one feels as a composer sometimes that they're in opposition to the performers. Yeah. You know, That's and, right. and, and people are sort of out to get one another. It, it is <laughs> very like weird, feels like high stakes, but extre actually extremely low stakes sort of way. That's very much changed. And I, and I felt that um, the scene in New York was, was surprisingly welcome, welcoming to me when yeah. I moved there. And it was, like I remember the the first group that I worked with in New York was Jack Quartet. This would have been back in like 2011, I think. And just the 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 vibes in the rehearsal session was so good. It was like let's work together, let's make something great. You know, that was the attitude. And and I felt like that was the usual attitude with with most of the people I worked with since then. And I think Talk Ensemble is kind of a perfect example of a kind of community or communitarian way of making music you know they they're excited to work with the composers that they work with it often big projects that last a long time developing relationships with people um and so yeah it, it ends up being more like a band um i think which which has its benefits because when when i'm writing a a, a flute part i'm i'm writing laura's part i'm not writing 
a, a, a general flute part, which is which feels good as a composer. Someone like Natasha Deals, she'll often write the names of the performers instead of their <laughs> instrument in the yeah. score, which is a nice touch. I think I don't I don't do that. I'm kind of I'm kind of conservative in my how I make my scores, but. Yeah, I, I wouldn't label conservative with your scores necessarily. <laughs> but I think, and you know, it's interesting because I see that as also a profoundly political statement. You know, uh, it's a way of, you know, we have the luxury of, of, of irrelevance in doing academic new music. Um, and that gives us the freedom to pursue different ways of making things and different ways of being human as a result. Almost like, you know, Stapledon's different societies. Um, anyhow, I'll, I'll leave that aside because I, I have some specific questions about the music, which I absolutely loved. Um, and a couple of quick things. I was wondering, did you... Actually, I mean, as I'm listening to the piece after reading the book, um, you know, and you've got fragments of the text embedded in the music, and I hear them in the context of different musical gestures that you use throughout the piece. Did you do any kind of direct sort of mapping in your own mind about specific gestures like violin arpeggios or the use of vibraphone or those those overblown fluty things you know they go Hoo -hoo -hoo. windows their curtains drawn were shut eyes beyond the seas level darkness a lighthouse pulse overhead of you know were those associated with specific aspects of the book Sort of yes and no. I, I think not in a super thorough way. Um, one thing that I did early on when I was putting the piece together was I had I sent the text to Charlotte, and she and ha and asked her to record herself reading the text, and then I did my text setting based on transcriptions that I did of her reading the text, mostly sort of just like the contour of how she said it and the rhythm. And so I'll, um, that had a lot of repercussions in terms of what the instruments play, because um, I, what I hoped to achieve in certain parts of the piece was that it sounded like she's just speaking naturally and that there's this kind of miraculous synchronization that's happening between what she's saying and the rhythms of her like natural quote unquote natural speaking voice with what the instruments are doing. And they're able to sort of sneak in little gestures between words or double her rhythm and sort of go in and out of these different relationships with the spoken voice. Um, and so in that way, I think the, just the cadence of how Charlotte speaks ended up being transferred to the instruments uh, quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing you didn't do with her is, um, and I was kind of glad you didn't because, you know, it's clearly kind of a, a, a third or fourth dimension that you put on top of the music with her voice, is to do signal processing. However, you did do that with the kind of the non-vocal, um, non-textual vocalizations, especially towards the end in this section, stars. Um, and I did notice, I think, some signal processing there. I wanted to ask you about your use of electronics in the piece. Of course, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah. But in particular, initially I heard it as like weird echoes, but then I was looking at your other work and you've got this really cool um, machine learning improvising thing called the, the scuffed computer improviser. And I'm wondering if you employed that in this piece. Not so, not so much that in particular, but... I will say there is a there's a huge amount of processing uh, on this 
recording. Nicely so the piece, subtle, nicely subtle, I should say. You know, yeah, a, a lot of it's kind of transparent. It's it's yeah. more of like how one might produce an album in like a popular idiom, where you have like basically processing all over the place, but it's kind of considered normal in that style, right? There, there is a lot of processing, but it's kept fairly minimal. So I have some like reverse delay on the spoken voice occasionally and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The only really overt processing I do, I do some um, synthesize, synthesizer doubling on the flute and clarinet at times uh-huh. um, because I've had a lot of fun building synth sounds using the the um, the multi objects in Mac, the latest version of Max MSP. Yeah. Or oh, wait, is it? Are they the multi objects? Do I have that name wrong? Uh, no, that's oh the yeah, multi-channel objects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it yeah. can just basically clone itself any number. Exactly. The yeah, MC, yeah. the MC objects yeah, have have it. made it. Have been really fun to work with. Um, okay. In any case, um, yeah, I, I like I, I like to keep uh, electronics a lot of the time quite transparent in my music, and so it'll often use the same timbres as the instruments that are present. But for this piece, I went a little bit further than that because it was conceived of as a recording first. So like, um, you can play it in concert, but first and foremost, this is a this is like a piece that is meant to be recorded. Ah, I did not know um, that. Huh. Yeah, so I was quite free in terms of the level of um, precision that I was asking for in terms of the pitches um, because I... I retuned a lot actually mm-hmm. uh, after they recorded. I mean, they. I actually had to retune less than I thought I would because they're so good at playing microtones. But um, I did some retuning afterwards, and also the way that the electronics are synchronized and the way that the processing happened is much more like a, you know, a, a, an album for a band um, than than a concert piece that is adapted for a recording. I, I wanted to go the other way around. And it, I I came up with this idea before COVID nineteen, but it kind of it kind of works works well. For it that. works very yeah. well. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you about you know your you, you kind of fluidly move from microtonality and then back into the orbit of tonality, and then you'll have maybe even almost what I would call atonal sections. And it did remind me of someone that I think is a big interest of yours, um, it, it, Harry Parch. Um, is this do you do you see this as kind of an heir to his tradition the way he employed his his stuff yeah uh, definitely i mean it, it's it's i think it'd be hard to be very specific about how harry parch influenced this piece but harry parch in general is just such a huge influence on me that it's it, the fingerprints are everywhere the 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 genealogy is is definitely in harry parch um delusion of the tailor <laughs> yeah exactly i'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. exactly no that's in delusion of the fury is the piece that i've obsessed over so it's a beautiful wonderful work but yeah. this holds its own and, and it's not I, I don't mean to imply that this is just a parch knockoff because it's very different and a lot of that has to do with the electronics i'm going to visit this one more time and then i want to talk with laura a little bit um but i have to ask you you have a sound and I even marked it. It's uh, 35 minutes and 15 seconds in the piece in the in the section called Musical Universe, where um, they're talking about creations Euclidean and non-Euclidean. There's this strumming sound that is just so cool. Ooh. 
I just wondered what it was. It didn't sound like an instrument, but I—I th- I mean, I think it's probably the electric guitar. I gave the per- I gave Ellery, the percussionist, an electric yeah. guitar in this piece. I'm a guitarist myself, and I have a couple, or actually two years ago now, I bought a couple of Strymon guitar pedals, um, and so this was just a way for me to play with guitar sounds. Um, yeah. But I went, I went, uh, so I'm I'm pretty sure that it's that section. He the guitar is really retuned. Uh, so especially the lowest string is quite floppy, and there's a he mostly plays um, harm, natural harmonics because and the guitar is laid flat, and so I think that's that's probably the sound. Yeah, I bet you're right. Or it's almost down down right close to the nut. It's a very trebly kind of sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, that's a great sound. And speaking of great sound, before I, before I go to Laura, um, I just wanted to say, you know, after listening to Star Maker fragments several times, I'm like, this is a really cool piece. Then I discovered the Star Maker postlude, which I believe will be included in the release, mm-hmm. which just blew me away. That's a that's a if if a, I can characterize it, it's almost a purely electronic piece, you know. Yes. And I just I'm a sucker for long drones and you know all the other stuff you're doing in it. So, you know, people who get this CD, make sure you listen to that one too, because yeah, I that's that's one of my favorite pieces of music right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. That uh, I'm, I feel very uh, flattered right now. But uh, um, I too am a sucker for long drones, and this, the the postlude was me um, making a, a piece that that satisfied me <laughs> quite a bit in terms of that, like indulging myself. Let's say. Yeah. So yeah, it's made from it's made almost entirely from recordings that I that were uh, part of the creation of Star Maker Fragment. So I did recording sessions with each individual member of talk ensemble at actually at the Columbia Computer Music Center. Yeah. Um, uh, I brought in all my own recording gear, but, but I, used, <laughs> I used the space. Um, We've got new gear though. It's even better now. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's incredible. It's what's happening there. Um, and then, and then also some recordings from the actual recording session up at Octave and Audio. And, um, uh, and so I made an electroacoustic piece, you like using all these different recordings that I had and also some, some synthesis. Um, if anyone's listening to this before March 3rd, I, I am not exactly sure when we're putting this out, but if anyone's listening to this before March 3rd, that is the track that is sort of previewed right now on Bandcamp. So anyone can listen to that now. Wow. Yeah. Well, do more like that. I like it. <laughs> Anyhow, Lara, I want to talk with you uh, because it's amazing how well your work kind of situates itself in this project, you know? Um, I should explain, Lara is one of the most diverse and gifted sort of multimedia, for lack of a better term, artists that I've had the pleasure to to work with at Columbia. And uh, her latest work has been involved in creating virtual reality scenes that you can see on the web. And um, yeah, I, you know, the other thing, people will see this work and they won't appreciate that you're also a gifted concert violinist. You know, I just recently had the pleasure of hearing you play some Bach partitas that were just blew me away, you know. And then in addition to that, you're just, you've got this huge kind of visual art career happening too, where I think you're doing stuff like 10 paintings a week. <laughs> it's just <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so, and, and somehow it all seems to come together in the way that you're employing technology. 
Um, I guess my questions, you know, kind of like what we started with with Taylor, you know, how did you get to this point in your career? And then how did that how did how did the uh, collaboration with Taylor, you know, take shape, given that you derived at that point? So I started playing on the violin uh, with Suzuki at age three. And I, when I was very young, I also um, really liked, uh, I went to a Montessori school and I really liked um, like picking up the art stuff because you can choose what you want to do. Um, but I never, I never had any um, teaching for my visual arts, and I feel like that has given me the freedom to like be very playful with the way that I work and what kinds of um, media that I use. I don't know. It's it's hard to tell an origin story for this, but uh, so I started like painting and drawing, um, and. Uh, throughout like elementary and middle school, I would always um, like give them to my classmates or like eventually when more people became interested, I started uh, making watercolor paintings of animals and uh, selling them to my friends. You have a very distinctive style, you know, I mean, because I've seen a lot of your work now and uh, it does What's surprising and kind of wonderful about this is that that style um, really lends itself to this particular project. You know, how, how did you guys connect? How did you kind of dream up, you know, doing this collaboration? I had made um, this series of uh, interactive works that warp, uh, that use material from um, acrylic paintings that I had done um, and I was also recording these short clips of myself playing violin and what I did is I I created these virtual planets um, that are procedurally generated so the 3d um, the 3d mesh is um, made with code one of the things that really integrates your work and, and people need to understand, you know, the level of your of your talent in terms of code is that there's these these things called shaders that you use in kind of 3D work and modeling and shaders are responsible for determining the look and the texture of the materials that every object in your scene has. And I believe it was you've got this shader that you wrote that does this incredible kind of shifting and morphing of colors, you know, in the background. Um, and it, it just seems to be so reflective of your other work that you do just as straight ahead painting. But at the same time, it really captures that sense of what the, what the book is. I, I assume that was just a happy accident or, you know, did you specifically think, hey, this will be kind of fun to try and do this, you know, when you confronted the text? How did that sort of happen? So the first um, appearance of this shader is when you see the loading text in the background. Um, you'll see this uh, shape that kind of looks like these lines that are um, ver like horizontal lines and it shifts back and forth. And that is um, 
a shader that just manipulates a painting that I did. So I did this painting um, for my aunt, like while I was at home in Washington State, just like looking at the water that is in front of us. Um, and so that that's what it that's what it uses. I I use um, I'm interested in writing shaders because um, I want a, I want enough motion um, without it being very expensive um, computationally. But and I remember I, also Laura when we when we first when I first approached you with the project, I remember you being like, ah, this could be a good opportunity for me to explore shaders for the first time because of like, I mean, like I, the text, <laughs> the texture of the, the texture of the planets, I think was the original idea. And though then it, be, then the shader ended up sort of taking up the whole universe in a way. Yeah. I, I like to find excuses to, to learn um, how to use something new um because i'm always trying to like everything a lot of my work looks the same because i am interested in uh the types of motion and shapes um of like organic organic life um and i think part of me thinks that that comes from where i grew up um, in Washington State and also uh, visiting uh, the areas where my parents are from, like in Puerto Rico, super lush rainforests, um, great fruits, uh, and then like in on a trip that I um, took with my family members to Vietnam recently, we went uh, to see a bunch of caves in Phong Nha. And they're they're super cool. They look like um, uh, they look almost like cathedrals or like these religious spaces. Um, and I'm really fascinated with how that forms. And um, yeah, so so a lot of my work um, is about like those types of motion. And I think it comes from uh, my violin playing background. Violin playing allows me to have a daily practice where I am focusing on certain muscles and like thinking about like how do I create something using my body and like the tools that are around me and how how do I um, produce sound and so my interactive work um, also kind of focuses on that motion um, in this app there is a planet that you um, you can see from different perspectives as you move between the scenes, you can see more of the planet or less of it or get close to it. And the planet surface is reflecting a digital collage that I had made. So as you move along it, you'll see these um, shapes that come from 
very detailed sections of photographs. And there are like images of like eaten corn and berries. Um, and these uh, like very sensory images um, that, uh, that I chose because of like how horrible they look together and how, <laughs> how scary it is to um, like see these textures and not see the whole thing. But then you're sort of experiencing um, you're experiencing the object in, in uh, a, like, sensory way, much like um, the creatures in these worlds. Yeah, I, that's the thing that struck me was how well it kind of captured the spirit of Stapleton's book. And then when you integrated Taylor's music into it, it was just like an all-encompassing experience. It was just really amazing you know and it's funny because you know you're talking about how you can one of the things i enjoyed was the ability to zoom in and zoom out you know and essentially that's what stapleton does through his uh through his text too because he'll go in and talk about the micro aspects of a particular community but then zoom way out and talk about the galaxy mind you know and um you, you get these different levels of apprehension and you've got that in your application one of my favorite things to do with it was to zoom way in and then just kind of watch it because it just formed this kind of evolving abstract art that was just kind of sitting there. Um, in fact, I, I wish Unity does this thing where if you leave the browser interface, it will stop its computation because it's you know pretty intensive. Um, but I wish there was an option that I could keep it running because I just loved having it kind of sitting there as I was doing other work, you know. Anyhow. But uh, I think it's also your kind of openness to kind of, it's, it's your artistic approach to using technology and coding. And obviously that's true of Taylor with, uh, with his music synthetic work, you know, and, and electronics um, that, that really leaves you open for kind of what I might call happy accidents. Um, I'm not sure if this was by design or not, but I was kind of like exploring the limits of the constraints that you placed in different scenes, you know, where you can't go beyond certain boundaries. But I found a few places where you could, <laughs> and that was that was kind of like happy because all of a sudden I could like fall out and see this thing from a different perspective, and you know it was a uh, those kinds of things you know that you wouldn't do in a commercial application become very profound in a kind of an artistic expression using technology. Yeah, in some of the scenes, um, it really distorts the audio because of how um, how the clips are placed in the 3D space. So in the, like, I think it's the third scene where they, there are these looping clarinet clips, I also put a, a like a Doppler effect on, um, on the clips. So when you decide to go really far and you start putting yourself in orbit, um, then you can, you don't really have much control over how you move at that point because you're circling the planet, but there is, there is a different um, experience that you can have of um, the audio depending on how you move. Um, and there's also, I decided to have you explore the planet 
um, by watching this like red ball dot thing <laughs> and you slide it up and down along the terrain of the um, of the planet and as as you uh, force it you know off of the surface it'll come back down and it'll hit the planet and um, trigger these uh, percussion clips um, <laughs> but I like that uh, like watching watching it outside of your own body as if it's um some kind of like rover or um spaceship yeah. yeah i always i always had a fun time with it where like i'd try to stay on the terrain for a while and eventually i would want to put myself in orbit and i found like that was the funnest thing to do and it it was interesting I, I never it never occurred to me that that zooming out idea was so much like the trajectory of Stapleton's book as well um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's, it's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I you know the, the one thing I'd really love to do with it Unfortunately, I think unity on the web doesn't allow this yet would be to put on my oculus goggles and fully inhabit the space That would be fun <laughs> But someday in the future. Um, yeah, hey, I think in the end, there was like, that was originally what I wanted to work on with Lara. But then it was sort of like, how many people are going to get to yeah. experience it that way? Well, and the experience of, of space and, and motion is, is really different inside the goggles. Um, well, I, I started out um, because I had taken Brat's class. I, I started out... Uh, thinking of building uh, my virtual world with the VR headset in mind. Um, and the, it was it was very fun. Like the, the Vive um, headset that they have at the CMC allows you to walk around and like squat or whatever and, and be in this in this space. Um, and so a lot of my uh, original conceptions of, of uh, the spaces that I wanted to build were based on like being able to be inside. Uh, so I, I made like this uh, cave-like experience for one of them. And then I built um, a dollhouse uh, and took 360 images inside so that you could be inside. Um, but when I moved to the web, I found that I was craving different kinds of um, interactions where if I'm on a screen, I can look away. Um, I can, you know, move to a different browser <laughs> if, if I don't want to be there anymore. Um, and it's a more casual way of, of interacting with the virtual space. Um, but then that also allows, uh, I mean, like using using the web is interesting for other reasons where I can use like a chat system or I can um, make a web app that can be easily seen by um, a bunch of different people. And so that encourages uh, more of a... Uh, like sharing and exchange 
That's a that's a real good observation. I mean, that's the one thing, you know, I, I really enjoy the immersive VR stuff, you know, but it really is kind of a single user thing. And, you know, that's very different than the sense of community this whole project has kind of engendered. You know, I tend to be curmudgeonly and hardcore. One of my more famous articles written back in the olden days was called Why I Hate Concerts. You know, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this uh, of this podcast. Um, but uh, that, that leads me to kind of maybe a, a final question I want to ask both of you about this. You know, it has to do with kind of the relationship that you establish with the world. And I guess the question, you know, simply put, is just, what are your hopes for this piece? I'll, I'll, let me ask uh, Lara first, and then maybe we'll finish with Taylor, okay? <laughs> it's a difficult question. <laughs> um, I, I think that when I make stuff for the web, my hope is that people will play play is uh something that i like to think about when i don't i don't want to be so serious about um like every like making sure every aspect of something is in place and i carry a lot of <laughs> that like nervousness towards like making something final but what i like about making interactive works is that the way that i I work as I, I try to try to make a different experience for myself when I, when I test something. Um, and I hope that, I don't know. <laughs> that's a great answer, actually. You know, I think that's a, um, I think we need that sense of play more than ever, you know, in the wake of the pandemic. And, you know, it's been a pretty terrible time in, in humanity's existence. So, yeah, but uh, I want to hear what Taylor has to say, you know, now that you've had My a chance to think dreams. about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, there's the album and there's the app, right? And in terms of both of them, I think fundamentally, I hope people have a memorable experience with them. Maybe ideally even one that maybe weirds them out a little bit and makes makes them have, uh, you know, some sort of transformative experience in whatever small way, ideally. Or even just as sort of Lara put is to enter into sort of a mode of play, even, you know, even listening to the music, not even exclusive to the app. In, and then in terms of the album and the music, I hope people have a personal experience with it. I mean, it, because it was recorded for, because it was recorded for a recording or over a concert piece, you know, I hope people put on their headphones and, and, immerse themselves in it and, and take something away from it that's that's positive, whether it be they experience something they've never experienced before in some small way, or it makes them sort of think about something differently. More, more than anything, I just hope that it's experienced by people. Yeah, actually, and you're bringing up a good point. Um, if you have a good headset, or I've got pretty decent speakers here at home, uh, it really rewards the music, especially the very first piece the first thing you hear is just this incredible whomp it's just gorgeous so yeah i'll just it's a wonderful piece um go to tac ensemble t-a-k-e-n-s-e-m-b-l-e dot com slash star maker 
Um, and also Lara's uh, app is uh, world slash StarMaker. Um, I encourage you all to check it out because this is really, really wonderful work. Thank you both, and um, yeah, I'll be listening to your stuff. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 16, with Taylor Brooke, Lara Lewison, and Brad Garden. The audio throughout this episode was from Talk's new album, Star Maker Fragments, which drops tomorrow on the Talk Editions label. Particular themes of approach or retreat, owing to variations of loudness and timbre, the creatures in this musical cosmos could approach one another or retreat, and finally vanish out of earshot. In passing sideways, they traveled through continuously changing tonal environments. You can find out more about the album at talkensemble.com starmaker and listen to the album in full at talkensemble.bandcamp.com starting tomorrow, March 3rd. There followed creations with spatial characters of several dimensions. Creations Euclidean and non-Euclidean, exemplifying a great diversity of geometrical and physical principles. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. This episode was produced and recorded by Brad Garten, Taylor Brooke, and Lara Lewison, and edited by me, Marina Kipperstein. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com or find us on your social media platform of choice. Thanks for listening.
woke on the hill. The street lamps of our suburb outshone the stars. The reverberation of the clock stroke was followed by eleven more. I singled out our window. A surge of wild joy swept me like a wave. Then peace. The littleness, the intensity of this whole earth, its film of ocean and of air. It's discontinuous, variegated, tremulous film of life. Of the shadowy hills, of the sea, vague, horizonless. Of the pulsating lighthouse, of the clanking railway trucks. My hand caressed the pleasant harshness of the heather. struggle 